verses 15 through 22. I just want to um, just kind of quickly catch us up again on the storyline. Paul is writing to churches that have been impacted by false teachers, uh, Jewish Christians, uh, but men who are teaching that um, in order for Gentile, uh, Greek, um, non-Jew believers to be really Christian, they need to believe in Jesus and submit to the law of Moses and uh, become Jews in effect. And And Paul has been hammering away uh, showing in his, res- in his rebuke of these, this false teaching the wonder of the gospel. And today we're going to have um, an insight into that again as we're looking at verses 15 through 22. Just want to, um, as we read it, this is going to sound a little dense to you maybe, uh, but that's, that's why the Lord gives preachers. Hopefully by the time we're done, it, um, it's, um, the truth of this just uh, sings to you and becomes powerful uh, to transform us. Let's give our attention then to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Beginning at verse 15, Paul has begun an argument against the Judaizers from the life of Abraham. He's going to continue that. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been ma- had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God, you have given us the Holy Spirit as our teacher, uh, the one who leads and guides us in, in, in the truth of your word and opens it up to us. And we're reliant upon the Spirit today, uh, that the Spirit of God would, Lord, to help me as I speak and, and give us ears to hear. I pray that your word, Lord, would be heard clearly. And uh, Lord, would, would be a great encouragement to those who believe and a great uh, call to those who do not believe um, that they would be called to faith in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we, uh, we are in this place at this time by your purpose, by your invitation, uh, your, your calling, and we pray, oh God, that you would now do your work. Lord Jesus, feed us your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, boys and girls, um, I'm sure you're aware that uh, there's a big holiday coming up in a few weeks, um, Christmas. You've heard of it? <clears throat> Excellent. And um, I want to imagine um, that your parents came to you and said, uh, boys and girls, they just said, uh, kids, we're going to do something a little different for Christmas this year. Instead of um, us just giving you things, uh, this year we're going to make you work for them. <clears throat> and the Sights of, of, of alarm are already, I'm seeing little boys. <laughs> um, 
But to make it worse, uh, they would, they were, they would uh, tell you that the things that you needed to do were things that you couldn't possibly do. So uh, your dad says uh, to you, um, honey, I, what I want you to do is you need to go and rebuild the car engine. And your mom says, I want a new addition on the back of the house. And it has to be done by Christmas, and you have to do it all by yourself. And, uh, and if you don't get it done, uh, no presents for you. That would be a bad Christmas, wouldn't it? <clears throat> Uh, that would be a bit, that would be uh, sort of sap all the joy out of uh, out of Christmas. Well, there's a lot of Christians who've had all the joy sapped out of their Christianity, and for much the same reason uh, that they're living as if the gift, the presence that God gives, His grace and His kindness and His His forgiveness and everlasting life, are things that that we, uh, we need to earn our way towards. That, and so you have so many Christians trying to do the impossible, uh, gain grace by effort. And you lose your joy in that process. Uh, seeking to do the impossible, gain grace by what you do. Uh, hoping that it'll be enough to gain, uh, to gain God's favor and everlasting life. It, it just strikes me as I come to this again, how often I've lived um, with a deep sense of failure uh, as a Christian, because I, I, I just look at what I do and what I don't do and what, what the Word says I'm supposed to do. And, and that sense of failure can just kind of go with you day after day. Um, and um, do we fail? Of course we fail. But the gospel is by promise. The blessings of God are by promise. And our destiny is, is ours by promise promise. That's what Paul is, is hammering away at in, in this text. The word promise is the dominant word. It shows up seven times in just our few verses. Promise, promise, promise. And Paul is, is, uh, is doing this because, as I said, he's battling with the Judaizers. Uh, these men who are, um, they're much like the aforementioned parents, right? They've, they're telling the Christians in Galatia that if you really want to experience the gifts of God, the gift of everlasting life, you're going to have to earn it by submitting to the law of Moses to do it. Well, Paul continues his devastating rebuke of their, this teaching uh, by arguing from the scriptures, from Genesis specifically, from Abraham, to prove that God gives his gifts, specifically the gift of eternal life, the inheritance um, he gives it through a promise. It's promised to us with an unconditioned and irrevocable promise. And so this morning, we're, we're going to look at this idea of living by, life by, a promise. I want to start with just two major points this morning. First, we're going to just look at the principle of promise, the first few verses, and then, and then the place of the law, the, the, the principle of promise, and then the place of the law. So as I said, Paul is arguing from uh, history, history that um, the, the Jewish believers in the churches of Galatia, and there would be many, they, they certainly would know all about this. They would know about Abraham, his father Abraham. Uh, they would know all about the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, that uh, God says, uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. Uh, that sort of is, is at the core of, of, of Jewish faith. Well, there are several things that Peter wants to, us to see and wants them to remember about that covenant that God made with Abraham. First, Paul wants us to see that that covenant is built on a promise. 
It's built on a promise. It's a unilateral, it's one-sided, unconditional promise. God just comes and says, I will. He doesn't come to Abraham uh, to make a deal. He doesn't say, Abraham, if you'll do such and such for me, I promise to do such and such for you. If you, uh, if you promise Abraham to serve me and to obey me, tell you what, I promise that I'll give you a land and I'll give you offspring. That, was, that is not what God did at all. He didn't ask Abraham to do anything. So John Stott says, there were no strings attached no works to do, no laws to obey, no merit to establish, no conditions to fulfill. It's all promise. Top to bottom, front to back, beginning to end, promise all the way through. Free, unconditional, unilateral promise to Abraham to give to Abraham and to his offspring, which he didn't have yet, Land. Okay, that's the promise. The land of Canaan. And secondly, which Paul is now arguing specifically here, is that that promise is unchangeable. It's not just unconditional, it's unchangeable. So verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, um, if, uh, if you have any um, understanding of legal things, um, you might say, well, that's not exactly true because uh, uh, the, the fact is that you can um, make a will today and you can ratify it. It becomes legal, and, but you can change it later, right? You can, you can go back and change the terms. Boys and girls, what that means is that if your mom and dad say, honey, just want you to know we've written you into the will and you're going to get all of our money when we die, you still need to be nice to them because if you're not, they can take you back out. <clears throat> All right? It can be changed in American law. Uh, that's the same in Roman law. Uh, if you had a will, you could, you could change the will after it had been ratified. But uh, it's not the case in Greek law, which the churches in Galatia would have been very familiar with. Um, in Greek law, once you have written the will... Once you have designated where your, uh, your property and your, your um, treasures are going, to whom they go, uh, once that's signed, it's done. So if you've been written into a will in the Greek world, you can't be taken back out. You can't annul it. You can't change it. Once it's ratified, it's done. And that's Paul's point here. That when God made this promise, I mean, if that's true with Human law, how much more with God? When God made that promise to Abraham, when he ratified it, it's done. It cannot be changed. It cannot be revoked. Paul says uh, some of, similar in Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. So if God has made you a promise, he will never... Revoke that promise. Third, and this is where things sort of blow up, uh, that promise was made to Christ. Now, that, that's a thought that um, um, is new with New Testament revelation. So Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, suddenly, Paul has introduced here um, a concept which just 
expands magnificently what this promise is actually all about. By, by showing that it's not just to Abraham and his children, Paul's not denying it's to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the tribes. It is, a, it is certainly to them, but, but Paul sees um, sort of two levels, two layers of this promise. There's, there's the physical reality and then the spiritual and eternal reality. So when, when uh, physically speaking, right, if we just look at this level, it, it certainly is a promise to Abraham, and it's a promise to Abraham's offspring, to the descendants that God's going to give to him, as many as the sands on the seashore. But, it, but it's more than that. Um, in, in, there's, a, there's a deeper truth here that this promise is not just about the land of Canaan. This promise is about an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, an everlasting kingdom. We know that Abraham got this truth. This isn't just some new idea that Paul is trying to ram into Old Testament Scripture. Paul grasped this. If you uh, read in the book of Hebrews um, how Abraham lived by faith, it, it tells us specifically that Abraham realized that the promised inheritance is not just some land in the Middle East, it is an eternal city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's what he was looking forward to. He was looking for a better country. So that's a very interesting when it, when it talks about Abraham and the other saints. The saints, they could have gone back to Ur, but they lived as, as pilgrims, foreigners in this land of Canaan. But they didn't go back. Why not? Because they were looking forward to go to Canaan. It's not what it says. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Canaan wasn't ultimately the goal ever. The heavenly country, the heavenly land, that was the goal. That's what they were looking forward to. So Abraham understands this. And Paul says, now that promise has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The promise is ultimately made to Jesus. He's the true, ultimate offspring of Abraham. And by his life and death, the um, he has gained the ultimate inheritance for all those who believe in him. Remember, he, Paul's already said that those who believe are the true children of Abraham. Believe in whom? Believe in Jesus Christ. So those who, I know this is a little tricky, but it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. So the promise um, made to Abraham, the promise of an eternal inheritance... That promise is made to Christ and through Christ who gains that promise. Everyone who believes in him receives it. It's a promise to you. right? That's what Peter says in, in Acts as he preaches the first Christian sermon. The promise is to you. To you and to your children and to all who are far off. To everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. That's who the promise is for. Through Jesus Christ. We're not just talking some esoteric theology here. This is a promise from God to you, to every person who calls on the name of the Lord. So we've established then that, 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 that see, something has happened to this world. God has intervened in this world. God has brought a promise to this world, an unconditional promise, an irrevocable promise, a promise fulfilled in Christ, a promise that is received by everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, a promise of everlasting life. That's big news. 
But there's a question that comes on the back side of it. Well, what then about the law, which Paul will ask specifically in verse 19, but he's already dealing with in verse 17. What about the law? And the first thing Paul wants us to realize is that the law can't possibly annul the promise. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 403, uh, 430 years afterwards, that 430 there, just so you're not confused, is not the time between Abraham and Moses. It's the time between, um, it's the time that Israel spent in Egypt. Okay? And you can go dig into your commentaries and figure out why he does that. But just so you're not, well, there's an error in the Bible. No, it's not an error in the Bible. They, uh, it's it's uh, what he means. But his point is, that law that God gives to Moses after they come out of Egypt, it cannot, does not, annul the covenant he made in the past with Abraham. An unconditional, irrevocable covenant. So, um, Verse 18, he, he, he wraps up the argument, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. It's one or the other. It can't be both. It either comes as a gift or it comes as a, a wage. If the inheritance comes by law, well, then it doesn't come by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul wants us to realize that, that, that law and promise are two different foundations, two different bases upon which God would re relate to us. They're two separate things. So in the promise to Abraham, God says, I will, I will, I will. That's the promise. In the law to Moses, he says, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not. That's the law. Luther says most of the confusion in the Christian life comes when we try to do this. When we try to make God's wills and, and thou shalt um, equally part of our confidence in Christ. Can't work. Um, John Stott says this. The promise sets forth a religion of God. God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man. Man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. And the conclusion to which Paul is leading is that the Christian religion is the religion of Abraham and not Moses, of promise and not law. We're saved by promise, not law, by grace, not merit. And that's the grace of the gospel, and it is essential for the believer's assurance and joy and peace. Phil Riken in his commentary says this, salvation in Christ does not rest upon a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. And again he says, this is the grace of God, that he does not deal with us according to our performance, but on the basis of his promise. Now if, that should feel like a huge weight just going off your shoulders. Have you ever worried that God will punish you because of your performance, your poor performance? That you, are, you recognize you're not, living, um, you're not living in obedience. You don't love God the way you should love God. You have not loved your, your spouse or your family or friends. You, you've given into your anger again and your lust again. And, and the truth is you, you, you have a, a deeply covetous heart and you're not thankful. And, uh, and your conscience is accusing you and the devil is accusing you. Um, and you're quite sure that, that God has is, is, uh, is had it, and the two-by-four of divine judgment is about to 
to come down. Well, that's because we didn't understand the gospel. We didn't understand um, that it, the favor of God and the disposition of God uh, and the, the acts of God in our life, He will discipline us, but He'll discipline you because He promises to, because He loves you. Because He's promised to save you. He's promised to, to give you the inheritance of Jesus Christ. He's promised to continue the work that He's begun and to present you one day without spot and with great joy in the presence uh, of God. He's promised to do this to you. And everything that God does in your life is in keeping with and in the interest of that promise. The gospel operates on the principle of promise, not law. God does not deal with you according to your performance. He deals with you on the basis of his promise. The gospel is about God's free, irrevocable, unconditional promise that Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's God saying to us again and again and again, I will, I will, I will. I will be merciful towards your iniquities and remember your sins no more. That's God's promise. You can read it in Hebrews chapter 6. That's his promise. I will. Now, why would he do that? What in you would merit that? That he would be merciful to your iniquities. And remember your sin no more. There's nothing in you that would merit that. But God, just like he comes to Abraham and promises this this eternal inheritance, he promises this to you. I will pardon you. I I will cast your iniquities into the sea of forgetfulness. He promises that. I will deliver you. I will show you my salvation. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. What confidence can you have that that you will be raised up to glory on the last day? What assurance can you have? The only assurance you can have is that Jesus promised it. That's the only assurance there is. If that is not enough for you, there's nothing else. Jesus promised it. I will, I will, I will. God makes all these incredible promises to his people in Jesus. All of them yes in Christ. And the law cannot revoke a single one of them. Our sins cannot annul them. They're irrevocably ours because God has promised it. That's the gospel. So why then the law? Because you know the Judaizers are screaming it. Paul, you're talking all about Abraham. Hello, what about Moses? What about the law? Verse 19. Paul responds. It was added because of transgression. Now what does that mean? Uh, We might think that it means that it was added uh, because God saw how wicked people were, and so he gave the law to to help people be good. And and the law does have some um, ability to restrain evil, but it has no ability to overcome evil. In fact, what the law actually does best is arouse evil. See, it doesn't make people good. The law doesn't. It, it makes people bad in some sense, right? If, if, 
uh, its purpose is to expose and even arouse sin. So uh, Romans 5.20, the law came in to increase the trespass. F.F. Bruce um, paraphrases Galatians 3.19 this way. Uh, The law was given in order that there might be transgressions. Now what does that mean? Well, imagine you live in a small town and um, there's no stoplight, there's no speed limits, um, and people just routinely drive through town 50, 60 miles an hour, just, uh, just barreling through. And, and the mayor has publicly asked that people slow down and, and, uh, and, and be considerate, but um, there's no posted limit, and so there's no law. But the city council finally had enough, and they made a law, and then they bought signs, and they posted those signs all up and down Main Street that says speed limit 35 mile an hour. Now suddenly, you see, you have a law, and everyone who goes over 35 is in direct Clear violation of the law. They are transgressing a boundary, which is what transgressions are, sin is, and they will be penalized accordingly. The law increased the transgression. And that's exactly the argument that Paul is making. That God gives the law not as a self-help project. He gave the law not to impart salvation, Not to um, help sinners merit grace, but simply to show men their desperate need for grace. It, it, It just highlights both what righteousness looks like and our the impossible task of us performing it. Luther again says this: the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery wickedness, ignorance, hate and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. That's what the law principally, Luther says, is for. So when we post it, right, when there's a big movement, uh, let's get the Ten Commandments posted on all the walls of the public schools. That's great, just know why you're putting it there. It's not to help reform society. It's there to show people their desperate need of a Savior. Now, we recognize, right, the law does have uh, an effect of restraining sin. And once we are uh, um, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the, the law is a wonderful guide to the Christian life. But its purpose, Paul is saying here, is not to produce righteousness, but to expose sin and even arouse sin, to imprison all of mankind in sin, so that Jesus Christ could be revealed as the Savior of sinners. That's his point in verse 21. The law, is, is it contrary to the gospel? No, it's not contrary to the gospel. It reveals the need for the gospel. It reveals the need for the gospel. If, if a law could have been found that produces righteousness, then you wouldn't need the gospel. If, if there were a certain, right, if you just do these things uh, and you do it, you do it well, God will declare you righteous. God will declare you innocent. You get the inheritance. If that law would would have been given, and if we could have kept that law, no need for the gospel. Just do right here. Well, guess what? Uh, That law has not been given because we can't do it. And whatever we could do couldn't possibly atone for what we failed to do. And that's why God has imprisoned all men Verse 22, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, but God did it for a reason. A gracious, sovereign, glorious, 
saving reason. Notice the word so that. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, to this end, for this purpose, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given, not earned, given, free gift to those who believe. John, the apostle, reminds us what that promise is, 1 John 2.25. This is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. This is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. You know, one of the uh, devastating things about um, the health wealth gospel, it promises so little. Um, your best life now, really? You want your, your, your best life now in this broken, lost, wicked world? That's your best life? It promises so little, just temporal, passing things. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That in Jesus Christ, you are going to live forever in the presence of God with a glorified body, with all of God's glorified saints in a perfect world where there's no more sin and no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. The old order of things has passed away and everything has become gloriously new. That's your inheritance. That's what he's promised to you. That's what he's promised. And that promise, friends, is meant to change our life, to transform uh, how we think of ourselves, to define our life. It did for Paul. Listen to how Paul introduces himself in uh, his letter to Titus, Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ in hope, in the conviction of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That's how Paul defines himself. He lived his life in the conviction that he would receive the promised eternal inheritance. Why? Because God, who never lies, promised it unconditionally, irrevocably. And the writer to the Hebrews encourages us to live with that exact same confidence. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Friends, that promise is intended for our hope and our joy, our assurance, our peace, no matter what the circumstances we face today. If you have cast yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, if you've called on his name, then this promise is for you, and it's meant to assure you, to calm you, to comfort you, to strengthen you. If we have eternal life as a promise which can never be taken away from us, then what can man do to us? If we have eternal life given to us in Jesus Christ in a new heaven and a new earth with a glorified body, what could any disease do to us? All it can do is, is separate our soul from our body so that we immediately go into the presence of the Lord and Jesus himself has promised that he will raise up our body on the last day. Nothing gets lost. Can you imagine what it would be like to live the, 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 the boldness and the courage and the love and the generosity that could flow from a life that is rooted in that promise, that is absolutely convinced that this is true because God has made a promise to you, you personally, in Jesus Christ. And he never lies. 
Let's believe the gospel. And let's pray that that gospel works in our life in all of its power to change how we think and change how we feel, to change what we love, to change what we long for, that we are increasingly being shaped by the promise that God has made to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. God in heaven, I thank you so much for your promise. I thank you, oh God, that you never lie. I thank you that you promise the most amazing things to the least deserving people. That you, Lord, promise to us in Jesus Christ everlasting life, eternal life. And nothing can revoke that promise. Nothing can annul it. Not our sin, not the temptation of the devil, not death itself. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Lord, I pray for your sheep today and all the hard circumstances they find themselves in. Lord, I pray that this, the promise of God would make its way into their fear and their worry, their anxiety. I pray, Lord, that this would make its way into the world where we are tempted. I pray, Lord, that it would make its way to the places we feel guilt and shame. And that this promise would become a foundation upon which we stand. That this promise would be a fountain of joy that flows out of our lives in generosity and kindness and patience with others. For, Lord, this promise can never be changed. And this promise is for us. In Jesus, our Savior, thank you so much for our Lord Jesus who purchased this inheritance and gave it freely to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to stand and respond to the word this morning. There is a Redeemer. Thank you. Thank you, oh my Father. When someone gives you a gift, uh, we need to say thank you. And this song is our one way, uh, just one way of saying thank you to God for his gift to us in Jesus. Let's stand to sing.
God's people said, amen. Thank you, Father. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, the Lord, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And as you go into the week that God has given and called you to live, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all until the work is done. Amen.